0: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We hope you're having a good one. Coming up on today's program, we'll get the latest meat export numbers from Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We continue to look at how our meat exports are being impacted by COVID-19. We'll get the very latest. Speaking of COVID-19, what's the latest situation in rural hospitals? We'll talk with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. And we're gonna talk with Jim Baer, President and CEO of the US Apple Association. We'll talk about the start of USMCA, and the ag labor situation all that coming up on today's show thank you for being with us we're going to start things off today with richard fordyce fsa administrator richard good to talk with you again thanks for being with us always good to be with you mike let's take a look at the latest numbers in in cfap the coronavirus food assistance program i see the number as far as the amount that you have sent out so far under cfap at 5.4 billion is that correct that is true. Those were the numbers as of yesterday. Um, we
2: have uh, we have processed applications for 300, over 365,000 producers. That means those applications, you know, have been filed by the producer. They've been they've gone through the approval process, and and payment has been made. So, um, you know, in my mind, pretty significant number uh, of producers that have participated up to this point. Uh, a little over a month. Um, into the program, so, um, you know, our folks have been busy. Certainly producers have been busy as well um,
1: applying for for CFAP. Iowa, the leading state so far, 568 million. Further breakdown, we see 2.3 billion going for cattle, 1.1 billion for dairy, 343 million for hogs. That's true. Um, You know, we knew
2: um, kind of really kind of going in that, you know, the, the, the different livestock categories, um, you know, would be, would be a significant percentage um, of that, uh, of those dollars, you know, going out through CFAP. Um, so not really surprised by those, um, but certainly significant dollars going to farmers
1: and ranchers right now um, in, in a very critical time for them. You're offering a number of ways for producers to uh, sign up, uh, different portals available to them.
2: That's right, Mike. Um, You know, and and I think we talked about this last time uh, when we were on, but we've got got offices that are in various um, stages of reopening. Um, Some parts of the country uh, actually have all their staff back in the offices and are taking producers in the office by appointment. Um, you know, there's a pre-screening that needs to be done, and some of those kind of things. Um, some offices still. Uh, most of the employees in those offices are working remotely. So, you know, over the last two or three months, uh, the agency we've adopted some new- newer technologies. Um, certainly, farmers.gov/CFAP. Um, is really kind of a go-to, kind of a one-stop shop to go and, and understand about the program, what commodities are eligible. Um, there's also uh, an application generator um, kind of payment calculator uh, that producers can access via farmers.gov slash CFAP. And, it, and, and as, you, as you populate the application, um, it actually um, – and then you can submit it via that website is a good way. Folks can also um, download and print the application off of farmers.gov slash CFAP and and either mail that or, in some cases, county offices have a drop box where you can drop it off. Um, Or you can simply call your local Farm Service Agency office and have the staff there kind of walk you through the different options and the different ways to be able to apply.
1: We're talking with FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce. Richard, have there been, and if so, have you been able to work through any bottlenecks or any uh, issues in uh, getting uh, the information you need and then getting the money out? You know, I I don't think so. We have, uh, we actually stood up a call
2: center um, on the first day of sign up uh, that either could answer questions, they also can help producers. they can help producers go uh, go through the application, answer questions um, about the application, uh, what, um, what maybe some of the categories or columns mean and where do you find that number, whether it's an inventory number or a sales number. Um, so, um, And then just the resources available at farmers.gov. Uh, we have brought on some, <clears throat> some temporary employees, also some other kind of staffing upgrades um, to be able to handle the handle the, the workload that's been associated with CFAP. I think, you know, from my perspective, I think it's going pretty well. Um, uh, and, and you know, our folks are getting the work done, and, and farmers and ranchers are responding and, and, and certainly applying, as you can tell by, you know, the number of applications that are already complete.
1: What about the commodities that have contacted you, sent in their information, that were not part of, that weren't eligible when CFAP started, but are making the case to be included, whether it be apples or potatoes or some wheat? Uh, When will decisions be made on those?
2: So, great question. Um, So those those submissions were done through the NOFA process, Notice of Funds Availability, and we received over 1,700 submissions. Um, You know, some were... Some were just suggestions on adding commodities. Uh, some, you know, some of those submissions had really, um, really in-depth data uh, along with those, um, and so we have split those up. We've got three teams here at Farm Service Agency, also working with AMS, um, to go through that data, and we'll be making an announcement fairly soon uh, on on some additional commodities. Um, but that's not going to be the end of it. We still have more data. Uh, to go through some of the some of the submissions, you know, require um, require us to call uh, or contact the submitter to to get some questions answered. Um, you know, we hope to have all of the data and the decisions done, hopefully, you know, in the next two or three weeks. So um, so we'll have an announcement here fairly soon on some on some commodities that are added, and then uh, hopefully another announcement. Um, you know, a couple of weeks or so after that. So, um, so the process is ongoing. We are um, we're giving it all of our attention. Um, we've got a number of folks on um, on that task, looking through that data, making contact with the, with the submitters to answer additional questions, um, working with the uh, office of the chief economist here at USDA as well. Um, but a lot of work around that process now. And, you know, we know it's, it's critical that we get these decisions made soon and get that, get that word out for folks so they can apply.
1: All right. So we may hear something about that in the next two to three weeks then. Yes, sir. Okay. Richard, as always, thanks for the update. We appreciate it. We'll stay in touch. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right. All
2: right, Mike. Sounds very good. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, take care. FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce, again, $5.4 billion has been sent out in the CFAP program. And for those commodities waiting to get in, we'll get an announcement on that uh, in a sounds like two to three weeks. And then maybe another announcement shortly after that on even more. All right. Coming up next, the latest meat export numbers. We'll talk with the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. That's next on AOA.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams.
1: We're joined now by Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, good to talk with you again. Last time we talked, we were kind of wondering uh, what the May numbers would look like, what impact COVID-19 would have on the, uh, the May meat export numbers. And we're starting to see... Some of that reflected in those numbers, aren't we?
3: Yes. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Um, Yes, uh, the May stats uh, that came out uh, were along the lines of what we thought they would be. Um, uh, We're down a bit on beef uh, in May, down 33 percent, actually. And uh, while we're up slightly on pork, um, it's down from where we were prior And I think what we're starting to see is um, an impact from the supply chain disruptions, which started in April and and really crescendoed in May, um, especially on the beef side. So, uh, you know, that being said, uh, we're it's probably not all related to that. I mean, we we still see one of our key regions, Latin America, Mexico, Central America, South America, uh, they're they're probably a good month behind the U.S. in terms of dealing with COVID-19. So, you know, food service is still shut down in Mexico, uh, the tourism, et cetera. So that, that kind of leaned pretty heavy on the uh, lower numbers for Mexico as well.
1: We're starting to see some recovery here in the U.S. with some openings and things, but we're also seeing kind of a resurgence, a spike in, in some areas of the virus. What are we seeing around the world? Well, I think um, I think the greatest example is Asia.
3: Asia was um I think we've talked about this before. The Asia was starting to see the impact of COVID-19, uh, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China way back in January. And uh, and then some of the other markets in Asia, Korea, Philippines, Japan, or a little bit later, but suffice it to say, most of Asia was at least a month, if not two or three months ahead of the U.S. in terms of dealing with this. So consequently, they're they're on the other side of the mountain, so to speak, uh, coming out of it. And uh, food service in a place like Taiwan has been back up and running now for several months. Um, uh, A place like Korea has been up and running for oh, six to eight weeks now, and but, but it's, it's a slow path to recovery, and uh, while it's open, it's by no means normal. Um, that being said, you know, retail continues to boom, uh, similar to what it's been doing in the U.S., and the online delivery platforms for both retail and food service are also booming. So I would say that the meat demand, beef and pork in Asia especially, is very resilient, uh, and we're seeing an overall rebound that's uh, uh, probably maybe a little quicker than what we thought originally.
1: We're talking with Dan Hollis, from President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, what are our customers saying? We've heard in the news a lot about China, uh, you know, rejecting or raising concerns about uh, meat coming from some of our plants because of COVID-19. Are you hearing that from other countries?
3: I think um, I think for the most part. Um, you know the 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 other countries and I, I look at some of our key trading partners like like Mexico like like Japan like Korea um uh, I think they've done a good job of understanding the facts that uh, COVID-19 is a human health issue a, a very serious one but it's not a, a a meat food safety issue and we've we and the rest of the industry have spent a lot of time delineating that making sure people understand what COVID is and what it isn't and uh, I think for the most part uh, most of the consumers around the world understand that uh, we still have a very high-quality, safe product in U.S. beef, pork, and lamb.
1: What about the impact of USMCA as we move forward now, now that that deal is in place? Is that, is that pretty much just assuring what we had or you know, securing what we had as far as market uh, access and uh, sales of meat, or do you see uh, increases coming, significant increases? Well, I think uh, I think you're right. I
3: think it secures what we had, and what we had before was stability, um, stability, in, in you know, free trade uh, with two of our larger trading partners in Canada and Mexico, and uh, you know, zero duty free trade. Um, this, this sort of thing is all we ask to be on a level playing field, and I think USMCA in that regard is extremely important in in maintaining that and and the and the fact that, that there's stability maintained in the in the trade relationship between the three countries is also key and, and you know since you brought up the trade agreements the other one that continues to pay dividends is Japan the Japan US ag agreement phase 1 that was implemented January 1 um, in my mind is, is probably one of the biggest deals done at least since bsc if not prior to that Uh, for the U.S. beef and pork industries. We're on a level playing field today in terms of inbound duties uh, vis-a-vis our biggest beef competitors like Australia and our biggest pork competitors like Canada and Europe. So we are seeing the dividends on the Japan side as well.
1: So you're optimistic as we continue to move into the latter half of 2020 as far as our meat exports?
3: Yeah, I think um, you know. Obviously, May was a down month. June June remains to be seen. I I think we could still see some lingering effects from the uh, supply chain disruptions back in uh, in May, in June as well. Uh, But I'm optimistic going into the last half of the year. Um, Let's face it, we're early July now, and our slaughter production capacities are back up to 95-plus percent of normal, which is a great thing. A lot of work done by the industry to to adapt to the situation. And uh, so I think uh, considering our supply situation and, and the fact that demand is indeed uh, rebounding some sectors faster than others, I mean, I think food service continues to be a drag, but... Uh, uh, the other sectors uh, in these key markets uh, continue to grow. So, yes, overall, I think we're looking for some um, optimistic growth later in the year.
1: Always like to ask you, Dan, about developing markets. Are there any that you see as uh, holding a lot of potential in the near future?
3: You know, uh, there is one uh, I'd like to mention, and that's, and we've talked about it before, but that's the African region. Uh, You know, we we saw, and it's mainly beef variety meats that are going there at the moment, but we saw our volume on beef variety meats for the month of May double versus a year ago. So uh, we're up from 6,000 tons to over 12,000. You know, this is livers, hearts, kidneys, things that aren't real glamorous to talk about, but the strategy. Cut it adds a lot of value to the beef uh, cutout. So, uh, you know, I think I think this is an emerging region, and and they're looking at the moment for low cost, the lowest cost protein they can find. And variety meats is usually where it starts. But my experience, and I think the industry's experience in the past, is when you start with variety meats, eventually the box beef and the box pork and things like this come with it. So, yeah, we're optimistic about the African region in general going forward.
1: A lot of discussion about a potential deal between the U.S. and the EU, U.S. and the U.K. We know the history, the baggage, especially when it comes to meat and meat products into into those countries and, and the challenges we've had. Are you at all optimistic that any deal is going to be struck uh, with the, those countries? Well,
3: yeah, I, I am. Uh, I think um, the EU is going to be tough, uh, but the U.K. being one country um, – maybe is a little more, uh, realistic. Um, and, and from a demand standpoint, I mean, we're doing business on beef and pork today into the region. It's small, but, uh, the, the potential for growth is enormous with a very large population base throughout the region. And, uh, and for the most part, a population base that, that likes to pay for quality, especially high quality products. And, uh, that's what we have. So, yeah, I think the UK especially is, um, as a possibility. Uh, there's a lot of potential growth there should we be able to get a deal done. So yeah, we're very supportive of the process. And, uh, you know, we're not, we still, it's not going to be a big, big market like like we're talking with Korea and Japan and
1: these markets. But uh, every market at this
3: point helps. So we're optimistic.
1: Yeah, it, that's for sure. Uh, so overall, real quick, when you look at the uh january through may all things considered we have to be pretty happy with the numbers i mean when you, when you th- look at everything that that's kind of been the headwinds uh, for the markets that uh, we still moved a lot of product
3: we we have and uh yeah we're, we're happy with the numbers but that being said the situation is so fluid uh day to day week to week it's really hard to to to, to forecast but uh yeah, I mean, uh, one thing the industry is getting really good at is being being able to adapt to changing circumstances. If nothing else, we've learned that from this whole experience the last six months. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, we have a high-quality product to supply as well, which is another advantage.
1: Yeah, flexibility is a key for sure. Dan, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you again, and uh, we'll see what uh, those June numbers have. We'll talk again when we get those. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right. Dan Hallstrom, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, looking at the May meat export numbers and his thoughts on the rest of the year. Well, we haven't done an update in a while on uh, our national rural health uh, situation with COVID-19. Where do we stand? We'll talk with Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association. That's next on AOA.
0: information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams
1: well we have not updated the situation in our rural health care system with during covid19 in a while so we're happy to have back with us brock slaybaugh senior vice president member services for the national rural health association brock good to talk with you again uh what is the latest? I mean, we, we we're seeing the reopening in the country, a slow reopening, but yet in some places we're starting to see some spikes and positive uh, tests for the virus and uh, concerns, and in some places kind of a, a pulling back. And there have been questions raised about: Are we going to be uh, that? The question we dealt with earlier in the year: Are we going to overwhelm in some places our hospitals and our healthcare system? What is the situation in rural America?
0: Well, uh, thank you, Mike, and it's great to be on the show today. Uh, Indeed, we're seeing uh, variations around the country regarding the uh, spread of uh, coronavirus uh, in uh, rural communities. Uh, Unfortunately, it is uh, expanding, or we say accelerating, in uh, states along the southern border, uh, Texas, Florida. Uh, We have uh, tremendous increases in Arizona. Um, And uh, these are impacting rural communities just as much as some of the urban ones. And so uh, we're seeing still, though, the concentration of uh, those that are reporting the highest uh, cases in rural communities that contain uh, prisons uh, and or uh, meatpacking plants. Uh, There still seems to be that correlation. Um, And, of course, those are expected uh, places for transmission because of the close proximities. but unfortunately, uh, we're looking at this as a, kind of like a roller coaster. Uh, we we have these spikes, these increases, and then there's a decrease. Uh, and we're seeing that, of course, up in New York, uh, up in New England, where they had some really high case counts, uh, yeah, just as much as six to ten weeks ago. And now, uh, of course, they're uh, they're on the descending phase of of their uh, of their outbreak. So. So, we're just watching this around the country and uh, and indeed making sure, of course, that we keep uh, uh, the increases uh, so that uh, hospital hospitalizations are are kept within the uh, realm of uh, normal for uh, their ability to handle the surge.
1: One of the big challenges earlier in the year was getting. Everyone, the equipment that was needed, and getting it to the uh, the hospitals, whether it be respirators or ventilators or masks or you know the the PPEs, are we stocked up now? Pretty much across the system.
0: Well, Mike, unfortunately, I have I'm sad to report that we've not really uh, conquered the supply chain issues relative to personal protective equipment. Uh, we're starting to hear isolated cases of some shortages uh, in uh, places around the country. Uh, Fortunately, with some with some resourcefulness, uh, they're they're able to achieve uh, the the needs that they have, uh, satisfying the needs that they have. But uh, but we're watching that very closely, and of course, it's really important as we've uh, as the CDC and public health agencies, in fact, some states are requiring uh, face mask coverings. Uh, to help prevent the spread of uh, COVID, uh, we are seeing increased demand for some of the face coverings and masking um, that, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's going on, which is a good thing, uh, actually, but, uh, but it's just uh, putting some sources of, uh, of uh, stress on a system that uh, hopefully we'll be able to cure if we can get some supply chain issues fixed uh, here quickly.
1: We're talking with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association. How much has government assistance, uh, how much of a difference has that made with the rural hospitals?
0: Well, it's uh, been a very important. The CARES Act, uh, which was passed in late April, uh, provided some really much-needed resources for rural community, rural hospitals and clinics. Uh, We're seeing uh, millions of dollars flowing into them to be able to offset the decrease in volume due to cessation of uh, uh, elective and non-emergency procedures. Uh, The SBA, the Small Business Administration's Payroll or Paycheck Protection Program, was another huge uh, uh, program that uh, helped to sustain our rural hospitals. I like to say that uh, that was like a defibrillator uh, to rural hospitals. It kind of shocked them back to life after these tremendous downturns. But uh, I keep reminding folks that uh, rural hospitals and clinics are still in intensive care, and uh, we still need to be paying attention to the longer term needs of these facilities.
1: One of the several ironies through all this has been the situation in the healthcare mm-hmm. system where the need has been so great uh, for the workers, but yet many hospitals having to lay staff off because, as you said, the, the loss of pro- elective procedures and things like that. Are we starting to see those workers come back?
0: Yes, I think uh, the, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, has issued reopening uh, planning for uh, hospitals and clinics. And so many of our rural hospitals around the United States have been following those guidelines and reopening their uh, elective and non-emergency services, and so uh, we're, we're seeing uh, a restoration of somewhat normal. I don't think that every facility is still back uh, to their pre-COVID levels yet. Uh, one of the things that we're dealing with is still the public that uh, is not sure that it's safe to go into a clinic or a hospital. Um, I would uh, urge uh, your listeners to remember, don't die of doubt. Uh, if you're having symptoms of uh, acute disease like heart attack or stroke, uh, delay is not the answer. Uh, your your healthcare facilities locally are totally capable of, uh, of handling your care uh, safely.
1: We know that there's been an ongoing uh, number of hospital closures in rural America. Has COVID-19 sped that up, or where are we on that front?
0: Uh, the money I mentioned a second ago with the CARES Act and the PPP, the Pay- Paycheck Protection Program, have uh, sustained many of our rural facilities through some of this uh, really uh, difficult time. Uh, so we've seen a leveling off. Uh, so we're at 128 uh, rural hospitals closed uh, since uh, 2010. Uh, this year we've seen 12 close, and thankfully in the last month or so, we haven't had any more close uh, since the beginning of the pandemic.
1: So now there's all the speculation of what's going to happen in the fall. Or are we headed for a second wave? Where are we in the first wave? Uh, so how do how do our rural hospitals and medical facilities, how are they preparing for kind of the unknown here as we move forward?
0: Well, that's a good question. Are we, are we in the second phase now, or are we, are we starting, uh, continuing the uh, phase one still? Uh, I think that what we're gearing up for at uh, at our association is advising our facilities that uh, they need to be um, um, basically uh, getting supplies of PPE available, uh, making sure that uh, they are uh, their testing capacity is uh, is in in place, and then uh, looking uh, to reach out to their community partners like long term care facilities, meatpacking plants, and and prisons, if they happen to be in that community, and begin to collaborate on ways that they can work with each other to uh, to mitigate spread. And then, last but not least, maybe look at uh, priorities like contact tracing. Uh, maybe uh, lending efforts to your local uh, uh, public health departments in tracking uh, and tracing the disease, uh, the COVID disease, so that we can quarantine those that are infected, uh, keeping them from continuing to spread the uh, the virus.
1: You mentioned those three key areas, the hot spots, uh, the long-term facilities, nursing homes, things like that, uh, the meat packing plants and prisons. Uh, I think when we look back on all this, uh, I think we're maybe, one of the lessons learned, maybe we should have focused more on those areas than, than, than we did. But uh, those are certainly still going to be huge areas of concerns moving forward with this.
0: Yes, I think you're right. And I think that uh, this is where I think this is where uh, aggressive contact tracing and quarantine is really important. So uh, that's predicated, of course, upon uh, effective testing. So we need to have uh, testing with uh, results reported uh, quickly uh, so that we can move uh, people that are uh, newly infected into a quarantine status uh, as, as fast as possible. Um, then the other areas that we're looking at and, you know, keeping our finger crossed and, of course, praying for this outcome that we get better treatment of the disease so that contracting COVID doesn't require, in every case, uh, in, in in some cases, uh, very dire circumstances. And then we're waiting, of course, on the vaccine, which we're told is under development and hopefully available uh, to, to us either this year
1: or next year. Yeah hopefully very soon. But as you mentioned, a lot of lessons have been learned about treatment of those with the virus. So that seemingly, when we look at the numbers, there's all these spikes in positive tests and things like that. Uh, but we've seen uh, a decline in the mortality rates from this. Is this showing that we're handling it better, Know how, better how to treat it?
0: Yes, I think that's true. We have some better uh, the the spread of learning uh, regarding uh, how to care for patients uh, and and starting certain treatments earlier rather than later, uh, and getting that information from one place to the other. So I know there's a lot of people in New York and and up into New England that are sharing their experiences with uh, with hospitals and systems down in Texas, Arizona, and Florida. So. Uh, So that has been very effective. We have randesivir now, which is a drug that's very helpful. Dexamethasone uh, apparently is working well. So there are some drug treatments uh, that are available that uh, have proved to at least reduce the severity of the illness uh, for for many and in some cases uh, eliminate or reduce uh, mortality.
1: All right, Brock, uh, thanks for the update, and uh, we will stay in touch. Hopefully the news will be better as we move forward. And we thank you for being with us for the update. Thank you, Mike. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President, Member Services for the National Rural Health Association. Up next, we'll talk with the President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. They're one of the commodities trying to get into CFAP. We'll talk about that and more next on AOA. Information
0: America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture.
1: Now, back to Mike Adams. And we're joined now by Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Jim, good to talk with you again. Earlier in the program, we were talking with Richard Fordyce, FSA Administrator, and I asked him about commodities such as yours trying to get into CFAP And he said an announcement would be coming in two to three weeks. I know you've made your case to FSA. Uh, Are you optimistic that you're going to be included uh, in this next round? He indicated that there'd be an announcement in two to three weeks and another one shortly after that. So you've got some chances coming up here. I know you're anxiously waiting.
4: Well, Mike, good to be with you again. Uh, You know, you can't be in agriculture and not be optimistic. (laughs) And so... I've been off the farm for, for quite a few years, but I retain that farm boy optimism. So yeah, we're we're sure hopeful and crossing our fingers. Uh, you know, it's, it's not like uh, segments of agriculture that weren't included in the direct payments, including apples and potatoes and blueberries and peaches and a number of other commodities. Uh it's not as though we're asking them to spend money they don't have. Congress has already given them the money. They just have to figure out a way to, to do that. And so we're hopeful that they're going to get it figured out soon. Two to three weeks seems like a long time. They've already had our 30-page our, uh, document for, for several weeks already. That's kind of a disappointment. But we will uh, play the cards we're dealt and hope for the best.
1: So we will wait and see. Meanwhile, I know you are very encouraged, very happy about the startup of USMCA.
4: Absolutely. You know, you could tell how important trade with Mexico and Canada was by the size of the agriculture coalition that worked for three years to get USMCA passed. Mexico is the number one market for U.S. wheat, corn, soybean oil, sugar, dairy products, poultry and eggs. Number two in pork, soybeans, and, and feed grains. Canada's number one market for our live animals, biodiesel, fruits and vegetables. Number two in ethanol. So talking about a lot of important trade between these three countries. We already had free access with NAFTA, so we're not going to grow any new markets with ex- with a couple of notable and important exceptions, some wheat classes uh, going uh, into Canada and dairy food products. But other than those, this is just getting back, just locking in, let's say, what we already had. And, and that's of absolute critical importance because it's it's just uh, it's the biggest trading block in the world. And everybody was just as nervous as can be that there was going to uh, you know, be some hiccup in that trade. And the aluminum tariffs, steel tariffs, didn't help now the president's threatening to put more aluminum tariffs on canada we don't we don't like to see that um we think that that's a mistake but um we'll try to work through it we export about a half a billion dollars worth of apples to mexico and in canada so it's uh it's a, it's half of our exports and uh, hugely important to us
1: we're talking with Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Jim, let's talk about the labor situation. So critical to, to agriculture in general, to your commodity, apples in particular. What is the situation there, and is there a shortage of available ag labor to you?
4: There's always a shortage of ag labor, uh, and even in a so-called normal year before coronavirus, I talked to growers, family farmers across the country who say they had to leave $100,000 worth or $200,000 worth of apples on the trees to rot because they couldn't get people to pick them. So that's always been a problem. This year, coronavirus has just doubled down on that pressure because uh, of having to social distance our workers. Uh, We provide housing for the workers while they're here on their temporary work visas. Um, But if you have to separate the bunk beds by six feet and you can't have somebody in the top bunk, you know, you've just cut your housing supply by at least half. Same thing in the packing facilities where they're, uh, you know, no different than a meat packing plant. An apple packing facility also has workers standing shoulder to shoulder in normal conditions. So if we have to separate them by six feet, we've just cut our packing capacity by at least half. So that's, that's added uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, we're heading into our super busy time period right now, and as we get into harvest, we're going to be harvesting apples. In fact, in some locations, some of the early what we call summer apples are already being harvested. As we move toward the you know, the really big season in a, in a month or so, people are kind of panicking. Uh, we've already seen that uh, the president's cracked down on the uh, high-tech so-called H-1B visas, um, the uh, visas for agriculture. We're no- we're nervous that that's going to become a-, a political playing card as we get closer to the election. In our in our mind, Mike, uh, you know, you can import the labor or you can import the food. We think it makes more sense to import the labor because we've got every natural advantage to growing the food here in the United States and bringing in workers for jobs that frankly americans don't want to do anymore Um, and it's not just picking apples but it's you know dairies and hog confinement operations and they all have tremendous labor needs so hopefully we can we can get through this next few months relatively um, unscathed and hopefully uh, work towards a better times next year and that's of course that's the that's the song agriculture always sings, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully better times next year.
1: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it is a critical issue, and we'll keep a close watch on it. And, Jim, we'll talk again when that announcement comes out from FSA on the, the next CFAP uh, uh, round That as far as uh, eligible commodities, and we'll see if you're in there. We'll talk again at that time, okay? Thanks a bunch, Mike. Take care. Oh. Always enjoy talking with you. Thanks, Jim. Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Coming up tomorrow, we'll get the latest numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. And we'll also talk about the crop conditions and some market outlook as well. That's coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, have a great and safe day. Be sure to join us again right here on AOA.